Today, let's ask the question, does God ordain polygamy? Today, I'm having a conversation with my friend, Christine, and we are talking about polygamy in the Bible. What, where is it? What is it about? What is happening here? Does God ordain these relationships? Does he intend for them to happen? Is the design for marriage to have more than one partner? Because there's laws about it, does that mean that it's okay? What is going on? These things are really weird and bizarre, especially in our modern context, looking back at this ancient context. And a lot of the different episodes that I've had recently kind of set us up to understand this a little bit better. So I had an episode on uh, the meaning of marriage or what's the biblical model for marriage and prostitution different topics like that, that I think if you go back and listen to those before this, it might help a little bit, just kind of setting up some of the, the background for ancient Israelite households and how marriages were set up and what they were intended for and that kind of thing, which helps us understand this a little bit more. We see God's design for equality and partnership. Christine has so much good wisdom about this topic and looking into God's protection and his respect and his commands to just dignify people all throughout scripture. And we, again, see that the God of the Old Testament isn't this mean old guy, but he's the compassionate, loving God that we see throughout scripture. So I'm super excited for this conversation. I've been waiting for this since I started this podcast. So I'm so glad we got to do it and record it. So here it is. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Why don't you give a little intro for yourself? Well, I'm Christine, and I live in Southern Utah most of my life, um, and I'm a mother of three kids. My husband is pastor of a local little church. Um, yeah, I homeschool my kids, and I'm kind of passionate about it, although I don't think it's the right decision for everyone. I love, like, our life doing it, so... I'm more passionate about it, more from the sense of like, I love it for us. So, <laughs> but awesome. yeah. And we've known each other. I should have figured it out before because I can't do the math. I feel like at least 10 years, probably more, probably like 12. It's more. Yeah. It's been yeah. like probably 15 at least, probably. I think because your husband, my pastor, was my youth pastor previously, and you, I think, came maybe like two or three years into me being in youth group, and then you guys were dating, and then you were engaged. Yeah. So you were like, I feel like you were like kind of my mentor in a lot of ways in high school, although I've really <laughs> taken more of your advice, um, and then we've just kind of become friends, and you do a lot of stuff for the Real Truth Ministries, the board chair, a million yeah. other things, so yeah. So we've, we have known each other for a minute. So we, today is a more controversial topic, I guess. Not really controversial, but it's just that I feel like a lot of these points, they are a little bit touchy in some ways. Okay, so the question today is, did God, does God ordain polygamy? And so we're going to look at a few different places in the Bible where polygamy is mentioned. Uh, the first polygamy is Lamech in Genesis 4.19. There's a lot of others. There's Abraham in Genesis 16, Esau and Jacob in Genesis 29, Hannah's husband in 1 Samuel 1, King David, King Solomon, King Xerxes. There's quite a few more that are just mentioned, uh, maybe in like a genealogy or something like that. So we will next look at concubines versus wives and what is the difference with that. The hard thing when we're looking at the Old Testament, which is where most of these verses are, is that the Old Testament just gives us a narrative most of the time of events happening. And so we don't really have a lot of right or wrong overlaid on top of that. It's just telling us what happens. It's just like, hey, this guy married this person. He married another person and another person. And we don't really hear a lot of what's happening unless God specifically speaks to that person or there's a prophet or there's a dream or a vision. There's not a lot of detail that we get as far as right and wrong goes. So the first polygamist in the Bible is Lamech, and that's Genesis 4.19. Many others, Abraham, uh, his sons. So uh, it poses a lot of questions, like we said, like, are, yeah. does that mean that God allows this? Because there's people like David, where we know that he's a man after God's heart. And um, there were a lot of 
good parts of his relationship with God and, and blessings that God gave to him. So does that mean that he's allows it? Same thing with Abraham, even Jacob. There's some really weird stuff there. So first, let's just lay the groundwork. What is a concubine versus a wife? Because quite a few times we see the word concubine used, especially uh, like King Xerxes, um, even with David, Solomon. So in a biblical context, it just means like a lesser wife. So not the not someone's main wife, or maybe not even their first wife. It, it could change. Um, but in other ancient Middle Eastern contexts as well, uh, it kind of meant that you were you were not the like primary wife, like maybe not the favorite, or you didn't have as many rights. In other contexts, other cultures, you wouldn't have um, a lot of rights. And so like we see that with King Xerxes in the story of Esther. He had an executive wife, which became Esther. And then uh, in his case, because it wasn't in the context of Israel, these, these were, um, there were captives that were taken into this Persian empire. So many of his concubines, their primary purpose was just a sexual relationship. They were just people that he had sex with. And so his chief wife would have a ton of privileges because in this Persian context, women actually had a lot of freedoms. It's pretty comparable to like an Egyptian society. They had a lot of rights. They could make money, a lot of freedom. But in this context, um, his concubines really were just there for sex and a physical relationship. And even like in the story of Esther, I always laugh. It's so weird that we use it for like women's retreats and always for like women's Bible studies, because it's pretty weird. And there's also some really hard things in this, like all the other women that were Esther who didn't get chosen to be this primary wife, they had to become concubines. They couldn't go home. So uh, different again in Israel's context, because God is like, or, you know, not ordaining, but um, God is giving laws regarding these different things, which we'll get into. But right. I think that's important, especially when we're talking about, especially like Abraham, um, and then a lot of these patriarchs throughout the Old Testament to give us an idea of like, what are we talking about here? What kind of relationship is this? So we're going to touch briefly on ancient marriages as well, because I, I think we get really confused too when we approach this. And it's scary because our modern context is so different than the, mm -hmm. you know, the world, uh, thousands and thousands of years ago in the Middle East. So it's good for us to pay attention to that. But um, if you didn't listen to, Siri just recorded everything I just said. That's great. Um, if you didn't listen to, I did an interview with Savannah Osredkar, who's actually your cousin. And we did a deep dive into ancient marriages and kind of what they looked like. Um, it was the patriarch of each family who was responsible for making sure that their kids were like going to be well taken care of and that they were marrying into other families that wouldn't abuse them or you know treat them with disrespect and they would pretty much pick for their kids who they were going to marry and it wasn't like a romance thing most of the time although people did you know you could love your spouse it was really just about like um how can we create a treaty or how can we create the best life for both of our families and it was less about the individuals and more about the family. So I think that's important. And also when we look at that, to see a lot of the laws about that, um, looking to protect women versus other cultures like the Assyrians and um, other ancient cultures that allowed like rape and sexual assault and a lot of different things. So I think that's another important yeah. piece of this puzzle. So when, when you think of this question, where does your mind first take you? Like, as far as, does God allow polygamy? What, um, and looking at marriage and, and all those things that are a little complex and we have to kind of look at them with a historical perspective, cultural perspective, what, what first comes to your mind? Um, I, it's funny because I'm not, a, I'm not, if you like black and white answers, I am not your person. So, <laughs> um, like, I really feel like when I look at this topic, I'm like, you've, there's nothing in the Bible that's directly like, this is a command, you should do this, whatever, da, da, da. but like you said, it's a narrative. So I'm like, well, we need to look at the story and we have to look at the whole story 
And we have to take it in a big picture view as well, because, and knowing, like you said, this is an ancient text. So even from the Old Testament culture um, that you see, it changes and shifts to the New Testament where you actually don't see a lot of polygamy. And there's a lot of cultural and historical reasons for that. Um, and so a lot of the instruction we get in the New Testament is dealing with the culture that's happening at that time, too. <laughs> um, it's relevant to us, especially if we can understand some of those more um, not as direct or they do seem to be talking about something cultural and we can get to the bottom of what that looks like and then we can translate it into ours. So with polygamy, <laughs> it's something that we saw really rampant in the Old Testament. It was everywhere. It was a normal thing. And I think a lot of the examples given, I always was kind of given a really black and white answer. And there wasn't a lot of talk about the nuances that happened in, in all of these and the different um, things that the narrative is maybe trying to get at more than, look, polygamy's bad. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not saying that the Bible condones it. I'm not really saying anything like that. I just think sometimes for me, I'm not like the best person because when I think polygamy, I always go to the bigger pictures of things and I'm like, oh, well, I mean, especially in all the stories like that you might use to talk about how polygamy may be good, bad, negative, whatever your, whatever your point is. I'm like, well, what are, what's, what's the story really teaching us? Are we just, you know, <laughs> taking this story and going, oh, see, <laughs> polygamy bad, you know, or whatever. So yeah. I'm, I don't know for me. Yeah. I think that what you mentioned, it's really important knowing the ancient cultures, knowing what, how the Bible was written as especially those first five books, they're um, very narrative. They're very much telling the history of how God is working among this people, humankind. And it's very important and we, it is relevant, but if we're not careful, <laughs> we won't, we'll just, we'll get things out of the text that aren't there. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting, too, that you bring up kind of, uh, we grew up in a, well, in, in the same church context, but also even growing up kind of maybe similar communities or um, until the point that we uh, were in the same church community, at least for me, it was like, well, we don't really want to ask direct questions about things like polygamy and <laughs> prostitutes and a lot of these topics. And I think for me now, and why I want to do and wanted to do one with you, uh, a podcast about this topic is because for me, and, and it's not even from a place of deconstruction or anything like that. That's not where my faith is now, but it's like, I really want to know head on, like what is going on in these passages? If it's difficult, that's the place I want to go. Because yes. I, I think too, the more that you love, like just fall in love with Jesus and with God and with scripture and you understand it, the less scary it becomes because it's not like, oh my gosh, what am I going to find out if I turn this page and start looking at these passages in Deuteronomy, which are weird and bizarre uh, and are still weird and bizarre when you start to understand it more. Um, I think you start to understand like God is someone that I can trust the way that he treats people throughout scripture from the first page to the last page is with dignity and respect. And he's looking out for the oppressed and he's looking out for people who don't have rights. And especially I think in the laws of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, it's really important to pay attention to other cultures and societies that are existing outside of Israel because there is a lot of a lot of patriarchy, whereas in like the patriarchy that God is instructing is a lot of responsibility and looking out for like, hey, you have the fight, like you have the financial responsibility to take care of your family and provide economic opportunities and make sure your kids are taken care of. Whereas other cultures were not necessarily doing that and a lot of times violating the rights of their daughters or their wives or sisters or just oppressed people. So I think we don't have to be afraid um, right. to look at these things. And I hopefully this can encourage people to maybe like just not be afraid to to start 
venturing into those places that seem at yeah. first glance really scary or weird, they are weird <laughs> that's okay. And we, the more that we learn about them, the more that it actually just proves to us that God is trustworthy and his love is all throughout scripture, I think. Totally. I think sometimes when we approach the Bible, we, we've heard our whole lives, like it's timeless and, and it's relevant and I don't disagree at all, but sometimes we get in our head because of those, that, you know, rhetoric, like that it's supposed to just make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and like, when you do go to the old Testament and you're reading through the law and you're like, this is boring. And why is this here? What does this even mean for me? Or, you know, all of that, but yeah, like studying the other ancient cultures has brought so much beauty to the law for me because I see, I'm like, oh my goodness, he's basically just setting up this, you know, this society, this, this community of people, and he's helping them see in every instance how to be a good neighbor, how to be a good person, how to love the Lord. Like, it's really interesting. And when you're like, well, why is that there? And you look at the other cultures and what they were doing, because we have manuscripts from other cultures and their laws and their practices and the way they worshiped their gods. And you see, oh my goodness, it's like, this is actually a counteraction. This is like bringing more dignity, even to their animals and the way that they treated and the way they built their homes. Like it was all about being safe and, and respecting each other. And it was really, it's a lot of beauty and it helps us, I think, even be able to trust God more because we see, oh, he's not as confusing. He's not distant. He's not just handing these people a bunch of rules for the sake of it. Like, <laughs> you know, so I think that's really important. And even with polygamy and, and seeing this was a pretty normal cultural practice, but there were things in place to protect other people. And I think throughout the whole thing, a lot of the problems we see with polygamy and maybe even the reason why it arose in the culture at the time was because of the fall and what happened when one gender was dominating another gender and and the patriarchy was set up out of the fall not out of like a created order that God ordained so we see now women becoming more and more seen as a possession, seen as something to conquer, to something to rule over. And a lot of times I think when you see polygamy in a negative light, it's because there's power at play in ways it shouldn't be. And there's things happening that shouldn't be happening in the first place. Because we're a fallen people who are like, I think we'll just do things our own way. And it didn't work out it hasn't worked out. It's still not working. <laughs> like we like to do things our own way. And it, it was something that God foretold happening and told Eve would happen that her husband would rule over her. It wasn't something he was prescribing, but something he was saying, this is going to happen. This is a direct result of the disobedience that's happened and the hearts that you now have. Um, so, so good. I feel like that's a really good segue into kind of looking at God's actual ordination that we have for marriage, because like we're saying, we'll get into a lot of these passages here in a minute uh, about polygamy and the laws and all of those things, but where God is actually like creating something and giving, we see a lot of meaning and purpose and like his design before the fall of man before sin entered the world. Um, we see something that's in a lot of contrast. I think it was, I've listened to a lot of people talk about creation recently because I've, I've been interested in this question. Was, so some people will say, okay, so like the garden before sin was perfect. It would, it would have been like heaven. And then I've heard other people say as well, no, it wasn't heaven, but it was good. God created it with goodness and he had you know, intention for man to live in this certain way. And I think it was the Bible project who has, they have a great few episodes about 
creation and kind of a series about um, heaven and earth and a lot of these topics. But um, they they brought up that topic like, well, it was probably just maybe not perfect, but good. And there was a lot of that we see pouring into the creation of man and the creation of woman. And so in Genesis 2, 19 through 25, you can read um, God's creation of uh, animals and then creating Adam and then seeing that it wasn't good for him to be alone, creating a woman. And like you were talking about, it's, uh, this is a hotly debated topic among a lot of people, a lot of well yes. people, um, kind of this question of subordination. Um, I think if you believe in the eternal subordination of the sun, I think you kind of have to, to believe in uh, the sub- that God created women to be subordinate to men. And so I think you would have to play a lot of that in here. Um, that's not my position. And that's not, I want to like go into that so badly. That's not what we're talking about today. But um, <laughs> I think when you, when you start to take this apart and you start to see it and also compare it to other pieces of scripture, uh, after sin enters the world and after the result of that and the consequences of that, there's a big contrast. And so um, verse 22 says the Lord uh, then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. Um, and then it talks about this is why a man leaves his father and mother. They were both naked and they felt no shame. It's interesting because a lot of Bibles translate this into rib, but actually in the original Hebrew, we see that it's side, which is kind of interesting that we've translated it that way. But I think, again, that gives us kind of this context that these are two equals and the woman was taken out of man, um, even the name that, that Eve is given, uh, it shows us that uh, it, it's the word ezer, which most Bibles translate into helper. And we see that word used throughout scripture um, more often than it's used for woman, but for God and in different forms of that word, but talking about how God delivers Israel and how God is a help to Israel. And so I think a lot of times, we want to diminish that and be like, oh, that's so cute. We took her out of the man's rib and she's his helper. This is so great. But will we really understand it in the original context and the design of this? Um, I think that we see that it was, it's like a partnership, a pair, a completion. And we're also not talking about like side A, side B Christianity today. Like, um, right. you know, should, should marriage be between just a man and a woman? But I think either way, either way you approach that topic, you can see the complementary nature of that relationship, like two mm-hmm. equals. And it's not like, it was not good for the man to be alone. So God created another being to like, you know, they're two individuals, but like the complete partnership there. And so I think that's really important when we're looking at like, what was God's actual design for this relationship? Because like you said, when, uh, you know, one, one sex, one gender was primarily in control, there was a lot of um, misuse of this and taking advantage of women. And especially like we've been talking about seeing that just totally abused, especially in other cultures, the way that they had just no dignity for women and the way that they used them and treated them like objects instead of this, where it's not just you're a helper, but like the, what that actually means. Where we see that in like Exodus 18.4, Deuteronomy 33.29, Psalm 33.20, that word as are being used and we see the, what I would say is the best evidence to support the idea that women are not subordinate but of equal value necessity and maybe that means I, I don't know I think that just means a lot for our lives not just this topic yeah and I I would say the rest of the bible really supports that and we're not gonna that's not our topic today but the whole new testament even Paul's writings that appear to be very much like women are subordinate aren't actually speaking of that. And that's where the culture and history really, ha- you have to be so careful to really get into the context, the full context, not just um, what the language of what the language is, but the history, the culture. And we do have ancient writing that helps us to understand what the world was like at the time. And it does shed light on even the type of narrative that we're, we're reading because we're reading this book 
like we would read, maybe like we're thinking, you know, in relation to other narratives of our time, but actually the Bible was written. <laughs> there's a lot of different forms of um, liter literature or literary styles, I guess. And knowing what literary, ancient literary style, which are different than our literary styles today, is happening in different books and how they were written and what was that purpose? How did it play a role in the Jewish culture? Like the Psalms played a very different role <laughs> than the Torah. And so um, just knowing those things, like I think really help us like to understand the significance of Genesis and and. I don't know. And it's account. So I think it's super important <laughs> and something that I feel like a lot of people want to ignore that that's important because they, I don't know if it's because we're just really lazy as a culture and we don't want to do the work. And we just like, well, I should just be able to read this and it makes sense. And I have the Holy spirit. So he'll make sense of it for me. And I don't downplay that at all. I think that's very true. Like the Holy spirit plays a huge role in helping us understand. Um, but we don't have to stay there and just, I don't know. We don't have to be spoon fed everything and the Holy Spirit can use a lot of good knowledge <laughs> and the theologians and, and historians and <laughs> archeologists to help us understand and more fully know God, which is exciting. And we should be excited about that, not so opposed to that, I guess. So, so I don't know. So good. Um, yeah, I feel like I need to just play that back and listen to it a hundred times. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a good start for us. Um, we're kind of like halfway through this, but um, I think that it's, well, it's important to know, because I don't know if we've explicitly said, I think you did, there's nowhere in scripture that explicitly condemns polygamy, which is one of those things where you're like, why did you not just put that in there? <laughs> why was that, why didn't you just slip that in to make this easier for us? But uh, I think that as we go through these passages and we look at different polygamists, we can see how that relationship was misused and abused for people's own interests. And so typically the interests of males, because either for sexual relationships or just for their own gain, like just having more people serving them or uh, maybe adapting or adopting the practices of different cultures just to use women as objects. And so, like I mentioned in the beginning, Lamech is the first polygamist. He's in Genesis 4. Um, I think this is good to follow up with this Genesis passage because in in Genesis 4, there's, it's kind of a genealogy. There's a lot of different names mentioned and um, different sons of Adam and things like that. But it, it's interesting that this is included in that. Lamech gives this kind of poem to his wives. He marries two women and their names are Ada and Zillah. And he says, uh, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, which to us, seems like when you first read that, you're like, okay, cool. Let's go to the next guy and hear about his kids. But this is kind of a threat. Like, hey, I've, if you look at the original Hebrew, this word, uh, sometimes translations say a young man, it's probably boy is the most accurately translated. So he's pretty much saying, listen, I've, I've killed a child for injuring me. So you guys need to watch out because I uh, will take revenge and it's not going to be great for you. And it's also interesting because uh, there's this book called, I always forget the order. It's either Prostitutes and Polygamists or Polygamists and Prostitutes. It's by David Lamb. He has so many great insights about this in the Old Testament. And he has a book called God Behaving Badly. So helpful and such a good tool. And he notes that their names mean ornament and shadow, which is so different than the name Eve, which is like this partnership, this helper, this deliverer even. Um, they, their names mean ornament and shadow and Adam's poem, like this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman is so different than this. Like, Hey, don't mess with me because I'm in control of you. There's not this partnership anymore. I'm the one who's in control. And I think that's uh, just a good start for us to, to, 
for us to understand that this, maybe not in every single case, and it's different also in an ancient context and a modern context, but we're seeing a manipulation of what God's intention was. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really good when you see those um, poems or you see things repeated in a certain way or there's like a cadence to it, like go back and compare it to where it was you saw it before. So like, yeah, Adam gives a poem of Eve and then you see Limit, Limit, I can't speak. Anyways, they have two very different feels to them. And I think it's really interesting to note and, and pay attention to those things because you do see a big spiral in the culture from this point on. And it's like, it gets so bad, right? I mean, like the flood happened and it gets so bad. And I think that it's, it's really sad to see. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Okay. So in Genesis 16, we see that we're looking at Abram and Sarah, they haven't been changed to Abraham and Sarah yet by God. And so Sarah couldn't conceive. She didn't really believe God's promise to Abram. So she gives Abram her servant, Hagar. So it's interesting because this verse mentions that Hagar was Egyptian. So it, it's a possibility. I've heard a few people make the connection. Maybe she was a, a slave who was trafficked out of Egypt when Abram and Sarah tried to fool Pharaoh in Genesis 12. So it's really probable that she, this wasn't like a willing engagement, a willing relationship. Um, probably she was a sex trafficking victim and now she's living in Abram and Sarah's home. Again, it's hard when we don't, when we're just giving, given the story, we don't have like the, this right or wrong uh, that the author is telling us. So we're not really sure, but um, whether it was uh, sexual assault rape or it was consensual. We know that Hagar and Abram sleep together and it's just not clear whether or not she had a choice, but the, the situation happens where Hagar starts to treat Sarai with contempt. Sarai, even though she said, hey, sleep with my concubine or sleep with this concubine, sleep with my servant. She's mad at Abram for doing that, which seems like, um, you know, there's some complications there. Sarai treats Hagar so harshly that she runs away. She returns. Um, but it wasn't because this is necessarily like a relationship that God intended for her. There's this encounter that she has with an angel that explains to Hagar that there's going to be some problems with Ishmael, her son, who she's pregnant with, um, and his family. And, he, but he's also going to have descendants. So basically like her, her future is secure in a lot of ways financially because she's a secondary wife. She's having some problems with Abram's first wife, Sarai, it's probably not going to end well there, but God is promising her this child and some security there in the future, even though there's going to be some interesting things happening with Ishmael. And yeah, I think it's interesting to note that Abram doesn't listen to Hagar, but God does. And I think, again, that's showing us like God's intention for people versus people right. who empowers maybe intention when they start taking advantage of these situations. And this is where we see Hagar call God El Roy, the God who sees me, the God who understands, who sees the situation. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think over and over, we're just going to see kind of like we've been saying this, there's something that happens when we stop dignifying people as inherently valuable as human beings, when we start to say, oh, well, women are subordinate. Oh, well, you know, there's reasons why this is okay, or um, it's okay for me in this situation as Abram, or we're going to look at Jacob and Sammy, uh, uh, Samuel's father and these different situations where people start to like make their own rules for themselves instead of honoring God's dignity and value for everyone. Yeah, it's, um, it's sad because you see this story over and over again. I'm sure if we looked at our own lives, we'd see the, the same story where we could get this blessing from God and in, in his way, right? Mm -hmm. We're still going to if he promises something, he's going to give it, um, which we see he still keeps his promise, even though Abram and Sarai are doing things their own way. But we even saw that with Adam and Eve, like with the tree of, of um, knowledge of good and evil. I really don't know that God was ever withholding anything from them that was good. But that knowledge should have come from God, right? He's the one that's teaching them walking through this new life 
all of this. And they decided to get it their own way. They were, you know, deceived and attacked by Satan in that way. And um, they chose to do things their own way. And, and then you see with Abram, you see God promise this child. And then all of a sudden, they're both scheming to do this. Somehow they're going to get the blessing their own way. So I think we see the fallout, you know, there's a lot of people that get hurt because of this. Um, and Hagar is seen by God. She's the first one to name him like a personal name. And you see him bless her son with a nation too. And it's really interesting to see how God does lift up people and even lifts up um, Abram later too like they go through this whole thing with Isaac where they have to like he asks them to sacrifice Isaac yes you know and then he provides a way out just like he provided Hagar's son a way out of dying too um and you see again and again he's the deliverer he's the provider he does have our best interests in mind <laughs> but when we abuse other people there's very steep consequences for that. And I think Abram and Sarai, they did see those consequences play out in their everyday life. And I'm sure even just going through what they did with Isaac and <clears throat> as much faith as Abram showed in that, like how hard that still all would have been to go through. And he, in a lot of ways, they went out to a desert <laughs> He had to lay his son down just as Hagar had to lay her son or chose to lay her son in a bush. You know, there's a lot of parallels and it's very interesting to see God continues to reveal himself in these narratives and it isn't condoning the things that his people did. <laughs> like it wasn't like, oh yeah, that's, it's fine. It's fine that you did this. No, like we see they do suffer a lot of pretty natural consequences, honestly, for, you know, kind of being jerks and, and also abusing people. So it's kind of like, so I don't know. I've always had an interesting, the connection between um, the Islamic church, between Muslims view of Ishmael and Isaac as well, because I think we see some of those consequences maybe today because they believe that Ishmael was the son that was supposed to um, like, supposed to be the blessing of the nations uh, that yeah. Isaac was supposed to be. And so it's it's kind of interesting because I think we kind of see some of those consequences. And so I don't know if that maybe gives us more insight that maybe she was a willing participant. I don't think it does explicitly, but I think, again, it's just like, you know, we, when we don't believe God, <laughs> we start to do things our own way. It, we're, we're really creating problems for our, ourselves. And I think Maybe some yeah. of these people believed that one woman wasn't enough or one, you know, one woman to provide descendants, which we, we um, might see more often as we keep going. The next, yeah. I'm trying to get through these next ones quickly because a lot of them are similar. Uh, Genesis 26, <laughs> 34 through 35 explains that Esau married a woman named Judith and another named uh, Basima. And verse 35 of that chapter explains they made life really miserable for Isaac and Rebecca, which makes sense if you understand the whole like patriarchy family thing. If you were someone's wife, you would, you would pretty much go live with their family, maybe not in the same house, but in the same like kind of area compound, maybe next door right. neighbors, or you live in the room next door. So uh, the, the choices that you made, especially regarding marriage, had an impact on your family. And so yeah. it could be because they had just not great personalities, we're not sure. Or it could just be because having two daughter-in-laws for one husband is complicated. That would that would be pretty complex. And so uh, in chapter 28, Isaac is also giving some correction to Esau because he married some Canaanite women, which was against um, the law regarding marriage for mm -hmm. people in Israel. He encourages him to marry one of Laban's daughter. And instead he marries Ishmael's daughter. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce what it is, Mahala. I'm not sure. But then we see with his brother, Jacob, also a very complicated situation, which I think we romanticize a lot, which is interesting, but he goes to work with his uncle Laban. He falls in love with his cousin, Rachel, 
He makes a deal with Laban to work for him seven years to marry her. Does the seven years. Laban tricks Jacob. This is so, especially when you look at this in a family context, even in an ancient culture, it's like, what? Like, this is wild. <laughs> Laban, the uncle, switches out his daughter that he promised to his nephew. And uh, so he ends up marrying Leah, her sister. So it's also like when you look at marriage, and especially in this ancient context, sex was a really important piece of the process of becoming husband and wife, and this made them officially married, like even though they, it, it wasn't like the official ceremony and everything that went through it. And this was before laws prohibiting family members, like cousins, to marry um, was put into place. Some speculate maybe it was because like, maybe there was a need to multiply the earth and because you had to marry Hebrew women, we're not sure, but this was before that law was in place. So yeah. technically it wasn't against the law, but we can see really poor decision-making happening here. Um, Jacob ends up marrying Rachel, and in verse 30, we see this complication come into place. He marries two sisters. He loves Rachel more. Rachel couldn't conceive. God let Leah conceive because she was unloved, it said, and she had many children. There's this whole thing with jealousy. She follows the path of her ancestors. She gives Jacob her maid, Bilhad, and he sleeps with her, and he has kids with Leah's maid, Zilhah, and it's this literal sister-wife scenario, and it gets so much more complicated. And I've, I've actually heard, recently, I heard at a conference, the speaker was condemning Jacob, which I've never heard anyone do, but he was like, he sh even though he loved Rachel, he, he really shouldn't have married her after he married Leah, which I think mm -hmm. presents just a lot of interesting questions. Like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You really <laughs> probably shouldn't marry two sisters. <laughs> this is a complicated thing. but. Um, it's interesting that as we see again and again, especially in, in families, this pattern repeats of like, well, I'm not, I'm not getting this thing that I want right now. So I'm going to totally defy what God has ordained and planned and intervene in my own way so that I get children or so that I feel more loved or, or whatever the situation is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it's interesting to see forgot what I was going to say. I just think it's interesting to see all the dynamics at play because it's like so many times we hear these stories and it's like, wow, like I think it's neat. Again, we see God's care for the people involved. I really see him caring for um, Leah and giving her children because as a mother myself, like you do fall in love and those kids fall in love with you. And it is a form, a very beautiful form of um, this connection that you can have with other uh, human beings. So she wasn't getting any of that from her husband. So it's just so neat that he gave her her own little um, way of loving and being loved when he, he, it wasn't happening the way it was supposed to happen. And God's just not limited to our <laughs> failures and our way of doing things um, and our insistent on doing things our way. So I think it's kind of beautiful where you, we sometimes do, I think, miss the point of some of these stories or at least see those really beautiful little nuggets because we're so focused on either the bad things that are happening and being like, see, see. <laughs> Yeah. This is why we shouldn't be in like in polygamous relationships, which isn't necessarily a bad conclusion. It's just, you know, um, maybe like, we don't think polygamy is as relevant for us today. And I'm like, but these, but the stories and how God shows up when you're really looking, because sometimes some of these stories are very confusing and some of them still confuse me. I'll, I'll be honest. Some of them I'm like, I still do not understand why God did that. Yeah. Like that seems harsh or cruel, but I do know enough about who he is through all these other stories that I, I know I can trust him. And I know that he was, he was doing things in love because he is love. So I'm not sure all the pieces that fell, you know, how all the chips fell or how they're all still playing out today, you know? Yeah. So. I think that you had given me a book in high school. I think it was a series and it was by Liz Curtis Higgs, if I'm correct. And it was like, 
couldn't tell you the name of it, but it was a, it was like about the relationship of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, but it was set in Ireland in like the 70s or something. It was not like theologically sound probably, but (laughs) I I love Liz Curtis Hicks though. She has great literature, but it's fictional literature, but it's, it was actually like really helpful, especially then because I was uh, 16 and I romanticized everything, like everything. (laughs) And so to be like, oh, this is actually not, not great. Like bad decisions were made here. And especially like you were saying, Leah's situation, like she probably did not make this decision. It was probably her father yeah. who made a lot of bad scheming decisions to manipulate people. And so to, to see how God cared for her and loved her, just like you mm-hmm. said, like seeing God's trustworthiness over and over, even in these bizarre things that it's okay to admit they're bizarre and <laughs> they make us feel weird, or it's hard to imagine in our modern, our modern world, which is good that it's hard to imagine because there are things that probably shouldn't be happening. But um, yeah, I think that was that gave me a lot of insight as a, as a young lad trying to figure this out. Uh, and for Samuel, Samuel's father, Elkanah, marries two women. He marries Hannah. He marries Penina. Penina could have children. Hannah couldn't yet. She obviously had Samuel, but and, and she had more children after that. But we see this this relationship where these women are kind of pitted against pitted against one another. It seems like Hannah probably was loved maybe a little bit more. So there's just like this rivalry that's created that just should not be in like an equal partnership. Benina taunts Hannah, she torments her and she would like make, it says to the point that she would cry and um, it would make Alcana say, aren't I enough for you? Why do you need children? It's just like, again, not seeing that design and God's intention for that design for that relationship. Um, there's, we don't have time to get into Solomon, but Solomon was a whole situation. A lot of wives, Deuteronomy 17, 17 says it's instruction. It's law, not talking about Solomon, but it says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And we can kind of see that linked in first Kings 11 to Solomon and this whole situation he has going on. Uh, he had many wives. He disobeyed God's commands regarding marrying Israelite women. He married outside of Israel. A lot of a lot of things happen there. Yeah. So I guess we've covered this quite a bit and um, we've been reiterating protecting the dignity of people. But I think a lot of times people come to the subject and they're like, okay, so why would you have laws about polygamy if it's not God's intention for polygamy? And so that brought my mind to Matthew 19, four through eight. Um, also in Matthew 5, 32 and Luke, Luke 16 and Mark 10, Jesus is talking about divorce, and so I think it gives us good, he specifically addresses this question. Um, The Pharisees are asking, I think it's the Pharisees, are asking him about divorce and um, trying to, like, trap him in his own words and get him to say, yeah, it's okay to get divorced or or whatever they were trying to trap him in. It says, haven't you read, he replied, that he created them in the beginning, he made them male and female, and he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, this is a verse that gets misused a lot because people say, well, you can't get divorced, if, even if it's abuse, even if it's this. And it's important to know, like you said at the beginning of our conversation, the context, because in this, in this time period in Jewish Palestine, and especially in the Greco-Roman world, divorce was rampant. Like, look up historical figures from first century, second century Rome. Everybody was, like, people were getting divorced regularly. It was commonly practiced. It was totally okay. People were having affairs and lots of children, and it really hurt people, especially women. And so I think we have to look at that with this context. And as far as polygamy goes and divorce and all of that, I think we're getting this insight. He's saying, your hearts were hard. So Moses was giving you these guidelines from the Lord, like like we've been saying, he's kind of telling you how to do this to respect people the best that you can, but this was not the design from the beginning. This is not how it was supposed to be, but because this is happening, and in maybe some societies where uh, where people are turning to the God of Israel, where they're adopting the practices of Israel, and um, maybe just in contexts where 
it seems like this might be inevitable for one reason or another, there needs to be some kind of regulation for this. We're not just going to let you use and abuse women to your whim and just say, well, that's the way it is. There's, there's going to be something in place that's protecting the people that are most vulnerable, which is these concubines. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, I think that a lot of the things that were permitted, like Moses permitting the divorce because the hardness of hearts was a protection on women. Because if you have an abusive person, their heart is hard and they're not willing to do what's necessary to be that person that's protective and safe of their partner. And then I also think with like Jesus and he was responding to the Pharisees, he was talking to their hearts too. There was a really common practice in that time where they would uh, basically put their wives out of the house as if they were divorced. Like they don't want to be seen again, da, 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 but they never gave them official papers of divorce. They never went through the proper channels. <clears throat> and therefore when they wanted to get remarried, they couldn't. And then they were caught, you know, and then they were in adulterous affairs or when they did get remarried, it was all complicated because they never really went through these proper channels for their wife that they wanted to put out. <clears throat> women did not, again, remember in Moses's day, but also when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, women did not have these choices. It was the man choosing to divorce the wife a lot of times. And so, especially when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, this is all about men putting their wives out of the home. And, and so he's advocating for them to, to, if they're going to do that, you need to do it properly because she, you know, it's not a kind thing to do to then just leave her destitute. Um, she has no options at this point. You've given her absolutely nothing, no way to remarry without now committing adultery. Like, nothing has you've given her nothing so um i think just yeah again remembering like <laughs> the heart of god behind these different things and be really careful about you know forming a whole viewpoint on something or a whole doctrine on something without really understanding what you're reading <laughs> Because when you read the, some of these verses, it make, it sounds like, oh, that's really straightforward. Jesus said it straight out of his mouth, blah, 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 blah. But then when you realize what he's actually, what he's actually speaking into, it gives you a lot of context. And then how do you translate that into our culture now? Instead of like, oh, so in every instance, <laughs> you know, it's never okay to say divorce or it's never okay to say do this or that or whatever. I don't know. That makes sense. So um, but it is interesting that so little is spoken about so directly about polygamy, but I think Jesus was really pretty like direct and well, he wasn't, he was pretty ambiguous about a lot of things, but he was like speaking into that culture and polygamy wasn't a huge, it wasn't non-existent, but it wasn't as prominent as it was like in Moses's day. Um, so. Right. Yeah. And you're. Your husband, Jason, did a great sermon a couple of weeks ago. I should just like link it because it was so good about understanding <laughs> the context of divorce. So yeah. good. Like you said, I mean, it, it does seem like there are a lot of times where, especially when people are asking Jesus questions, he'll like respond with another question or something. And you're like, just tell me the answer, Jesus. I want to know. <laughs> but, um, but there is times like, like, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of things where he, he's pretty direct or when he's, you know, um, when he is talking about sin or something like that, he's, he's pretty direct to that. But there's things like this where we really need to understand the cultural context because it's, it's hard to just like take one statement and blanket apply it to all of our lives and not understand what life was like 2000 years ago. And I, I believe in the, the accuracy and the, holiness of scripture and believe that it's our final authority it's the beginning it's the middle it's the end it's everything it's inspired and it can guide us and correct us and teach us i absolutely believe that but i also believe that we should understand it with the correct lenses and the correct understanding and i think people will, will take this 
like you said, like you can't, you can't get divorced even if you're being brutally abused. And we, we can see throughout scripture that is not God's heart or intention for marriage or women. But we, we take that, like, can't say anything about that. But then we're looking at, you know, like, uh, in, I, I can't remember it's first or second Timothy, but all these laws regarding modesty and like, don't wear, don't wear your hair in braids and gold jewelry. And it's like, well, your wife is doing that, but you're, you're going to say that this isn't okay. Or like, she's not wearing a head covering when she's praying in church, but we're going to be really strong about this thing when we can see throughout scripture, the overarching picture of God's design for humans, but also his protection of women that we're going to, we're not going to look at this in context. That's yeah. when I started to have a lot of problems. And that's kind of why I started this whole thing is because I really want people to know when they have really strong opinions about something, let's really dig into it. Let's spend time. Let's spend like maybe an hour or more even just on this, looking into it and trying to understand it. And so, yeah. Uh, polygamy is definitely a deep dive topic. Once you get into it, there's a lot there, but um, we, God's character throughout scripture, even though it sometimes seems like it might be contradicting yourself or the old Testament is the old mean God and the new Testament is the new fun guy, Jesus. That's not all we see. We see his consistency and holiness and trustworthiness and goodness and compassion throughout scripture. Yeah. And I think even, you see over and over again in these stories, I, again, God's character coming through, especially if you're putting on the right, you know, heart, I feel like, and lens and really trusting the spirit too, because I, again, I do think he, he lends a lot of clarity at times too, or, or even just peace and not knowing <laughs> when things are like, well, we don't know. <laughs> pretty unclear, but there's a lot of things that are clear. And I see, you see over and over again in the old Testament through the new, like God is elevating people. He's equalizing people. He is lifting them up out of these desperate situations and loving them. And he's asking other people to do so. And we don't do a great job at it. Sometimes we do. And you see some you know, some of his people doing it really good at certain times and then other times they're failing the next, you know, chapter, but like, so goes the story, right? <laughs> God is good and perfect and wonderful and loving at all times. And we are sometimes and sometimes, not. <laughs> you know, we can do great things, but we also mess up pretty great. And so, um, and I think that's just important to realize because even in those weird passages like head coverings for women, if you dig into the culture, what's really happening there is an equalizing situation. And it's really fascinating. So I think even in a lot of these instances of polygamy, you see God trying to help guide us in different ways and guide the narrative, but also showing us how to treat each other and how not to treat each other. And, and sometimes that is the lesson in some of these is like, that wasn't okay, you know? And, and it's got devastating consequences for generations to come sometimes. So I think it's a good message for us that there's weight to what we do in this world. <laughs> yeah. So. And I, I think too, it's like, it's just so important to know like, like I said, like, I, I'm not a person who's like, well, does the Bible really mean this? Or does it really happen like this? Or was it, you know, was she really a virgin when she had Jesus? I absolutely believe scripture, but it's like, we just have to, we have to understand everything as it was intended. Like when Jesus says, cut off your hand, if it causes you to sin, he didn't literally mean cut off your hand, but, and we understand that, but we don't understand like this. So I think that's, we gotta, be yeah. we gotta do our homework. We yeah. So um, before we go, I'm going to just briefly, hopefully one day we can do like a super, super deep dive. I feel like you could do like a whole podcast just about the laws of Deuteronomy, but um, there's some laws here that you can, if you want to dig further into this or just take a look at some different commentaries that can give you some background information about these, um, especially in Deuteronomy 21, we see different laws about polygamy. So they're regulating polygamy. Like we've been saying, like they are giving some kind of guidelines so people aren't mistreated and abused and just then sold for sex slavery, which was common in that, uh, in that world, in that ancient context. 
but they're protecting people. And so Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, again, this isn't like saying, great, have lots of wives, but we see there's, if a woman is a prisoner of war, you can marry her, but you have to let her mourn first. And there's steps that you have to take for her health purposes and your health purposes regarding hygiene. You have to treat her well and with dignity. If you divorce her, you can't sell her. And uh, 21, 25 through 17, if you love one my wife more than the other, you're a polygamist and you have preference for one wife over the other, you can't give one of them more financial security than the other. There has to be equality. You have to treat them well, even if uh, you have love or romantic love for one or the other. There's a lot of laws about marrying family. You can't have a wife that's married to a husband and a son. You can't force your wife to have these relationships that the law explicitly does not allow. And that would also be really awful for that woman. Um, Leviticus 18, 18, don't marry sisters, which seems obvious, but (laughs) we needed to address that here. It's not a good idea to marry two sisters for so many reasons. And um, I'm very much with you that I feel really uncomfortable, especially at this stage in my life, addressing certain things that aren't in scripture or that aren't explicitly said in scripture, whether that's historical events or um, like I just had a conversation with David Osredkar about theophanies and there's just like so many question marks there what's happening but especially about even like polygamy I am under the understanding because we're looking at the whole context of scripture that this is not a relationship that God ordains or wants or desires but he gives us instructions about it but there are a lot of counter arguments probably not within the Christian culture some weird sex and cults of Christianity there are but for the most part most Christians would say polygamy is wrong but there are maybe like just outside uh, other religions or just outside of Christianity uh, perspectives I would say well you know in other cultures polygamy is actually good for some women in some situations like maybe it gives them they don't have the ability in their culture or in this cultural setting in history they couldn't be autonomous. They, they couldn't be independent and single. They couldn't receive an education or high-paying jobs. They can't provide for themselves. Um, they needed husbands or brothers or fathers. And in some places, we still see this happening. So I've heard this argument, like, if a man can't have multiple wives, maybe he should to provide for those women. Or like ancient kings uh, in, di- in different cultures were expected to have multiple wives because they could afford to provide for many women who couldn't live independently. And so... I think it's important, we don't, we don't spend a lot of time there, but I think it's good just to like uh, acknowledge that there are other cultures and other perspectives besides just our tunnel vision of like our American culture today, but especially yeah. when you look at scripture and we're just thinking like, how could these men do this? Like, how could a man have more than one wife? What, what are you talking about? I think it's just good to pay attention to those and, you know, just test them against scripture and see what they say. For sure. Yeah, I do think like when we went to Uganda, that was something that was very interesting to see because you saw a lot of people um, coming to know Jesus who were polygamists and they never encouraged them to split their families apart. So you did have a lot of believing families who really love the Lord, but the most loving thing for them to do was to continue to care for their family, you have all these children who are brothers and sisters. Now you're just sent a whole unit away. Like, so it's just, you have to remember that there's nuances in every story and making a blanket statement that, you know, something's right or wrong, especially when it's not like, do not kill, you know, like it's spelled out in the Bible. Don't do that don't rape, don't do these things. But like, there's these nuances that happen, especially when maybe the Bible doesn't touch on it in the same way, or like in a direct way. Uh, Polygamy is actually, you know, pretty littered throughout the Bibles. So we can look at a lot of different examples. But I mean, for example, maybe there's something that you can't find in scripture that is happening in your culture today, but you can find a lot of wisdom in these different ways or 
asking yourself really good questions, like what's the most loving thing to do? What brings the most dignity to this person or like whatever, whatever it is. Right. So I don't know. I just think it's good to remember there's going to be nuances, especially in this modern day, whether it's our culture or a different culture and don't make, I'm not saying don't take really good hard stances on things you should like love your neighbor and the things that are very, very clear in the Bible. But when it comes to these really tricky topics, like polygamy, like be really careful that you're, that you're actually developing relationships with people instead of just telling someone across a computer screen that they're wrong and immoral or like just calling them things and you have no relationship with them. You have no way of walking them through nuances and actually leading them to Jesus and the creator, which is like the most important thing, (laughs) period. So I think sometimes we just get too caught up in right and wrong versus like building these relationships and knowing Jesus more ourselves and then allowing people to want to have a relationship with him because you're actually building a relationship and pouring light like into their lives. So I don't know. So like, yeah, with things like this, I just think build those relationships. If you disagree with someone across a computer screen, build a relationship first before you start trolling them. And then you probably won't want to troll them. You know? So good. (laughs) So good. You had so much just good wisdom and not like nuggets of wisdom, like the whole buffet of wisdom. So I'm so glad that we had to, we we got time to do this conversation. Our, uh, for some reason, it's giving me a timer that it's going to shut down our meeting in like two minutes. So otherwise I would like try to keep you for seven more hours, but um, thank you so much for, giving your insight to this. And I always, I say a million times, if you uh, ever listen to this podcast, our goal is not to tell you what to believe or not your pastors or your moms. So read your Bible and just dig into these things and, you know, pull out commentaries, pay attention to the original Hebrew, listen to a Hebrew scholar and an Old Testament scholar who know this super well, who can tell you, listen to different perspectives and just really get a a deep understanding of this before you make opinions. And like you said, like, I mean, we're kind of disregarding what Jesus taught us and the whole Bible teaches us when we're yelling at people that we don't know online and treating them with disrespect because we don't agree with them on something. We have to be, uh, know what we believe and why we believe it and where it comes from. So I'm glad that we, there's so much here, but I'm glad we got to spend, you know, a little bit of time in this hour. So yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to do this. And I, I'm sure you'll be, you'll be back here someday. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Later.